Our sermon text is from Romans 8. I'm going to read verses 29 and 30 from the handout. Listen carefully because this is God's infallible word to us, his people. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those he predestined, these he also called. And those he called, these he also declared righteous. And those he declared righteous, these he also glorified. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need your blessing on the reading, the preaching, the hearing of your word. And so sanctify us by the truth that you have breathed out, that you have inspired from the book of Romans. We pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I haven't exactly been moving through the book of Romans at a fast clip, but uh, we've slowed down even, slowed down even more uh, now that we are in verses 28 to 30 of chapter 8. Uh, I thought about using the, uh, the metaphor of, of a mountain peak, but I've already used that a couple times with a couple different passages, so I thought maybe a better analogy would be uh, a foundation. I think I'll maybe use that one too. But these are doctrinally foundational passages. Uh, foundation doctrine, foundational doctrine is being taught here in these verses. And so it's good for us to slow down and take in the details of what Paul is teaching us here. One of the joys of traveling is getting to cross big rivers, like the Mississippi River on the eastern border of Missouri, one of my favorites. Uh, if you're like me, the, the drive across the bridge is not, not enough time to take in the river's magnificence, especially if you're the one driving and having to keep an eye on the road. And that's why I was thankful a, a year or two ago uh, that Brandy and I went up to Herman, Missouri, and we were able to just stand one day on the edge of the Missouri River and take it all in with no rush. Every river originates from some source, some water source. It culminates in some other body of water somewhere, and it creates a fascinating story as it meanders from one point to the other, from one end to the other. And when you look down over the bridge at the river, you see a current that was generated upstream in the past, and that same current has a future downstream in another body of water. But you can't see any of this while you're, while, while you're driving over the bridge or while you're standing on its edge, staring at it. All you see is the water in this one spot. To find out more about the river's upstream and 
downstream story, you have to pull up a map and maybe do some reading on the internet. And there's a sense in which this is the way our salvation works. We see what God's doing now, and we can see a little way upstream, maybe a little way downstream. But if God didn't give us passages like Romans 8, 29 and 30, we wouldn't know where the river of God's grace originated and how far upstream it goes. In this passage, Paul traces the surging waters of our salvation from one end of eternity to the other. He shows us that God originated our salvation in eternity past. He generated our salvation in time, and he will consummate our salvation in eternity future. Paul also assures us that the salvation of his people is eternally secure because everyone who begins the process described in verses 29 and 30 will also finish it in glory. That's just a grammatical reality of the passage, not just a theological deduction, as we'll see. These these two verses, rightly understood, settle an age-old theological debate. Throughout church history, controversy has raged over the question of whether genuine Christians can lose their salvation. So truly saved people can can lose that salvation. And some theological traditions teach that people can be called internally by God, born again, justified by grace through a living, even saving faith in Jesus, and then fall away from that grace and lose the salvation that they once fully embraced, at least for a time, ending up in hell. But today's text presents a major, I would say insurmountable, obstacle to that teaching. Verses 29 and 30 describe a golden chain of salvation, and all five links in this chain are unbreakable. Paul emphatically states that everyone who participates in one of the links participates in all the links. In other words, all those God truly calls and declares righteous in time, these same ones will be glorified because they were predestined for this salvation. They were predestined for this glory before the foundation of the world. Paul's emphatic. It says, those who, these are. So those who were called, these same ones are justified. And those same ones will be glorified. And it's the same ones that go all the way back to God's foreknowledge at the beginning of the chain. So if you're one of those whom God has included in the golden chain of salvation, then nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Your salvation is eternally Secure. And when true believers hear this teaching, it does not lead to presumption. Oh, I'm eternally secure, so I can live the way I want. It doesn't matter. That's, if that's your response, then you don't have a living and active faith 
what this doctrine actually leads to is gratitude and in more obedience, more love for God that manifests itself in our lives, in our words, in our works. Now, Paul's main purpose in writing these two verses is actually not to settle a long-standing theological debate. His purpose, actually, is very practical and pastoral. He wrote this to encourage and comfort real believers who faced real difficulties daily, who faced challenges to their faith, Christians like you and me who groan in a groaning creation, to use Paul's language from earlier in chapter 8. He wrote to saints who endure affliction or distress, and in some cases even persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, to borrow from Paul's language later in the same chapter. Verse 35, the Christians in Rome, like us, just like us, faced trials of various kinds. And apart from God's grace, they would stumble. Without a word from the Lord, a word from God, they were in danger of becoming useless and unfruitful, to use Peter's language that we're going to come back to at the end of the sermon. They would stumble, as Peter says. They, they, would become, they were in danger of becoming useless and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In danger, as Peter says, of becoming blind and short-sighted. In danger of forgetting that they were cleansed from past sins. That's why Peter goes on to say to make their calling and election sure. We're going to see how that plays into what Peter or Paul is teaching in verse 30. You and I need this word from Paul. Not so we can defeat theological opponents on the internet or around the Thanksgiving or Christmas table, but so we can endure difficulties and face them with an eternal perspective. An eternal perspective of God's past, present, and future work of salvation for us and even in us, through us. Paul wants us to know the promise that we discussed a few Sundays ago in verse 28. God will make sure all things work together for the good of those who love him, who are called, remember that word called, according to his purpose. And that's an eternal purpose. A calling that ultimately goes back to eternity past. Well, how can we know that that promise in verse 28 is true? We know it's true because his purpose to save you and glorify you in the end goes all the way back to the foundation of the world in eternity past. And it reaches forward all the way to the age to come in eternity future. It's anchored on both ends in eternity, in God's sovereign purpose. It's critical to see in these verses that our salvation 
is totally of God. 100%, not 99.9. Totally of God. If any one of the links or any part of any of the links in this chain of salvation were of our doing, were dependent on us rather than on God, then the whole thing would be fragile. In fact, the whole thing would crumble, fall apart. In verses 29 and 30, Paul takes us on a, on a tour. It's a thumbnail tour of our past, present, and future relationship with God or his relationship with us, his knowledge of us, his love for us, even before we existed. So before time, God planned our salvation. He foreknew and predestined us. In time, he called us and declared us to be righteous. And beyond the present timeline, he will glorify us so that we look just like his son, Jesus. And in all of this, God is glorified and Christ is magnified. Verse 29 says, For, he, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, among many brothers, among many siblings. Jesus wants faithful siblings. The Father wants Jesus to have brothers if you're trusting in Christ, your salvation is eternally secure because God originated it. That's what this verse teaches. He originated it before he created the world. And according to verse 29, there were two parts to this. First, God originated your salvation by deciding in eternity past to love you, to set his special love on you, not a love that he set on everyone. That's, that's what foreknew means. And we're going to briefly cover the foreknowledge and divine predestination because we've talked about those at length in previous sermons. But that's what foreknew means. It doesn't mean that God looked ahead and saw that the future you would believe in Christ and then based on this knowledge, he predetermined, predestined to save you. This would, this would mean that you are the sovereign initiator of your salvation rather than God. It would mean that you loved God before he loved you. That, that you moved toward God before he moved toward you. In this case, the deciding factor of your redemption, your salvation from sin would be your action. Your future action rather than God's action, God's determination. And this interpretation also would contradict Paul's main point, which is that your salvation is secure because it's of God, wholly, totally, completely. So divine foreknowledge refers to the special love that God set on you before he spoke anything into existence. And in, the, in these two verses, the subject of every uh, every verb is God. He's the only one who takes action in this passage. And his first action toward you in eternity was to foreknow you, to love you beforehand. To be known beforehand by God is to be loved beforehand by God. His foreknowledge of you 
is the sovereign, distinguishing, saving, special love that he set on you before time. So God has literally loved you forever. That's, that's what divine foreknowledge refers to in verse 29. So think of it. Just think about this before we move on to the next point. There's never been a moment in time or in eternity when you were not the object of God's saving love. Okay? And so even when you were still an object of God's wrath before God saved you in time, before He called you, redeemed you, regenerated you, you were still, from eternity past, the object of His redeeming love, which was sure to become a reality in time and in eternity future. Just, just let that truth percolate into your soul. Let it, let it penetrate your heart as well as your mind. There's never been a moment in time or in eternity, if you're a child of God, in eternity past, when you were not the object of God's saving love. Nor will there ever be a moment in time or in eternity future when you will not be the object of God's saving love. Nothing can ever separate you from this eternal love. If you belong to Christ, then God has never not loved you. And He'll never stop loving you. He'll never stop loving you with that fatherly affection with which He loves His only begotten Son. That's what it means to be a brother of our Lord. You have the same Father. See, the good news of the Christian faith is that the eternal love of the Trinity has spilt over, spilt out into creation. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always desired, even from eternity past, always desired to include a special people in their eternal community of love, always wanted to set their love on those that have always, in a sense, belonged to them. God originated your salvation by deciding in eternity past to love you, to set his special love on you. Second, God originated your salvation by deciding in eternity past to predestine you, Paul says. God's predestination of you logically flowed from his foreknowledge of you. These two things go together. God set his love on you beforehand. And this eternal love for you caused him to predestine you. The beginning of Ephesians, Paul says it this way, for he, God, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will. The good pleasure of his sovereign will is behind all of this. 
In Romans 8.29, Paul emphasizes the main purpose of divine predestination, which is that you might be conformed to the image of his son. Okay, that's the end goal. God's eternal purpose for you is that you become like the eternal son, the God-man. The process of becoming like Jesus has begun now, if you're a child of God. It's begun in you, in this life, in your character, in your conduct. God's grace is causing your attitude to, be, to become more like Christ's attitude every day. He is causing you to be of one mind with your Lord every day, more and more every day. This grace is causing you to think and talk and act and love more like the Savior. It, it, God's predestining grace is helping you act on behalf of others rather than out of selfish ambition and conceit. As Paul says in Philippians 2, it, it, this predestining grace makes it possible for you in humility to consider others more important than yourself. Do you see how this doctrine is not just an abstract theological principle that we can debate you know, our theological opponents about? For Paul, it's practical, it's pastoral. This process of conforming you to the image of Christ process that was predetermined before you existed, it only gets started in this life. It'll be completed in the world to come. God promises to bring your conformity to Christ, a process that's begun now, He promises to bring it to completion on the day that Jesus returns and transforms your lowly body to be like His glorious one. Philippians 3.21. So, foreknew and predestined are the first two links in the chain of redemption. They took place before the foundation of the world, before time. And if, if you want to think and learn more about divine foreknowledge and divine predestination, there are a lot of great resources. You can go back and, and listen to the two previous sermons that I preached in this series on Romans, which are, should be on the website. The next two links in the chain take place in time. In the first part of verse 30, Paul writes, And those he predestined, these he also called. And those he called, these he also declared righteous. And so the second reason your salvation is eternally secure is that God generated it, generated it in, in time. And, and Paul mentions two aspects of this. God generated your salvation first by calling you, and second, by declaring you to be righteous. Or we could say by justifying you. That's what being declared righteous is, is being justified. For the rest of the sermon... We're only going to look at the first one, the first subpoint. God generated your salvation by calling you. This is an important doctrine in Scripture. 
very quickly, notice two things about this calling in verse 30. One, the author of the call, the subject of the verb, is God, God the Father. God alone is the subject of the verb called. Two, the recipients of this call are those whom God foreknew and predestined. And all those that he foreknew and predestined. God doesn't call every person indiscriminately. He he, he only calls those he foreknew and predestined, and he calls all those he foreknew and predestined. Every single person that God chose to save before the foundation of the world will receive the call that Paul's talking about here. And so we need to talk about the nature of this call because the scriptures use this word, this concept, this verb uh, in noun form, call and calling. It's used a lot. We need to understand a couple different ways that it's used. Okay, So what this means to say that all those that were foreknown by God and predestined by God are called. This means that the call in verse 29 is not the external call of the gospel, which is a universal call that goes out to everyone indiscriminately. Paul's describing a call that only the elect experience, only the elect, the chosen ones, receive And thankfully, Scripture helps us in understanding these two different callings. God's calling in this verse and in other places in the the epistles, God's calling in this verse is internal. And we'll see irresistible or effectual. It always works. It's effective. That's what effectual means. Irresistible, effective, does what it sets out to do. All the way, every time. Okay, so Paul introduced us to the idea of God's internal calling up in verse 28, where Paul refers to believers as those who are, quote, who are called according to God's purpose. So we need to realize that there are two different types of calling in the New Testament. There's the general, external call, which goes to all men, And then there's the specific internal call, which only goes to the elect. I'm only going to give you a few representative passages. If you're interested in this, there are a host of of texts that we could study. Uh, Be a good Sunday school class, perhaps, but we'll just go through a few. So the, the general external call of the gospel is universal. And this is what Jesus was talking about in the parable that Pastor Bobby preached last week, where Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen at the end of that. In that verse, the called ones, the many that are called, and on the one hand, and the chosen ones, on the other hand, are not the same group of people. Okay? To be called is not to be chosen in that verse. In Paul's verse, to be called is to be chosen, but in, in Jesus' use, 
Matthew 22, it's not the same group. In fact, in that parable, many of those who were called to come to the wedding banquet refused to come. They resist the call, or they take it lightly. And so they're tied up, hand and foot, and thrown into outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus extends the, the external call when he says, repent and believe the good news. That's, that's a summary of his gospel as he's going around teaching and preaching. His, his call is to repent, turn from your sins, and believe the gospel, which not everyone did. Or when he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. John seven, thirty-seven. The first reference, repent and believe the gospel, Mark 1, 15, if you're taking notes. Or when he says in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. These are examples of the general external call that God extends to every human without distinction. And we need to briefly here remember that this is a real offer. It's a genuine call. God means it. Right? He's not winking as he says because, yeah, I haven't chosen you. We know that he hasn't chosen everyone. But we should never deduce from that that when he offers salvation to all, that it's a real, genuine, we could say heartfelt offer. And there's, there's an important sen sense in which he truly wants everyone to respond to this call with repentance and faith. That's what the scriptures teach us. The difficulty, of course, with the external universal call is that if people are left to themselves, they won't respond to it with saving faith because they can't. Paul's taught us that several times, that there's an inability to respond to that external call of the gospel. Unbelievers apart from the Spirit, can hear the gospel, process the words that are being declared, and even understand it up to a point. I've heard unbelievers explain the gospel with, with a certain amount of clarity, even though obviously there's a lack of fundamental understanding. Up to a point, they can understand it even, but the God who issues the invitation to come to the feast will always be undesirable to them. Always. Apart from the internal call. If the external call is not accompanied by the internal call, then there will be no response of faith. God's eternal wedding banquet is just not worth it to them. They've got fields to inspect, you know, new, new fields that they need to go see. They've got new oxen to examine, new wives to tend to. A careful reading of the Gospels should cure anyone of the illusion 
that if you give people the light, then they'll find their way, right? We'd like to think that people make foolish mistakes and, and bad choices because they, they just don't know any better. They need more information. If we show them the way, if we, if we shine the light, they'll, they'll, they'll see the, the error of their ways and they'll follow it. It's the only rational choice to make. But that's not how Scripture describes our natural spiritual condition. It's so much worse than that. Jesus is the light of the world, and when that light came into the world and shone bright, what happened? His own people rejected it, rejected the light. John 3 says this is the verdict, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved darkness rather than the light because... Their deeds were evil. John 3.19. A few chapters later in the same gospel, Jesus says, No one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's often pointed out that the word draw in that verse is, is a little bit stronger than our word draw. It's, it's, it's usually actually translated something like drag. And um, the, the essence of what Jesus says in John 6, is that no one's able to come to Jesus unless his or her heart of stone is softened by the grace of God. And so it's not a dragging against our wills, but it's, it's a drag, kind of dragging that changes our wills, reforms our wills, softens our stony hearts. It's not a drawing that leaves it up to us in the end. What we need to realize about the general external call of the gospel is that it's not enough. It's not effectual in itself. It's not a, it's not a problem of the call or of the gospel itself. Of course, it's the problem with the hearts that it meets, which are by nature made of stone. It doesn't actually soften hard hearts by itself. It doesn't turn stiff-necked rebels into faithful sons. It doesn't change prideful sinners into Christ's brothers and sisters. It doesn't, it doesn't enable anyone to love God, to turn from sin, to walk in the Spirit. For that to happen, for those things to happen, a person needs to be drawn Dragged by the Father. He needs to be dragged into Christ by God's grace. He doesn't just need the light to shine generally. He needs it to shine directly into his heart. He needs it to cast out the blinding darkness in his heart specifically. He needs the specific internal calling of God, which is what Paul has in mind here. In fact, in the New Testament epistles, the calling of God refers to his internal, irresistible, effectual calling, which permanently transfers a person from darkness to light, from spiritual death to eternal life. We see a picture 
an illustration of, of effectual calling in John 11. My, my favorite illustration, an inspired illustration. Those are always the best. Where Jesus raises Lazarus from, from the dead. When the Lord shouted, Lazarus, come forth. Those words, full of power, brought a dead man from the grave. Jesus called Lazarus, specifically, out of the tomb. And it was an effectual calling. An irresistible calling. It's been said in... Riley brought this to my mind this week. It's been said that if Jesus had left out Lazarus' name, if he had just shouted, come forth, then the whole graveyard or all the dead would have been, uh, the graveyard would have been emptied. All the dead would have come forth. Because the call that he was issuing in that moment was effectual, powerful, irresistible, Effective. Only Lazarus came forth because only Lazarus was called. And this scene in John's gospel of a, of a physical resurrection illustrates the effectual power of God's word to call sinners out of their spiritual graves. Charles Spurgeon said that the general external call of God is like sheet lightning. You know what sheet lightning is in the, in the night sky, which, which illumines the clouds, but doesn't actually strike anything in particular. Whereas the specific internal call of God is like a lightning bolt that hits its target. The target of God's internal call is the heart, the heart of stone. That must be turned into a heart of flesh, malleable, a malleable heart. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that Satan, the God of this age, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Two verses later, Paul he, Paul tells us why believers are able to see the light that unbelievers can't see. Why is it? Well, it's because, Paul says, God has shown the light of the gospel, the light of the knowledge of God in our hearts. The, the lightning bolt has struck a tart has stricken a target. It's taken out the target. It's obliterated the heart of stone. It's driven out the darkness. This is the specific inward irresistible call that all God's chosen ones receive. All those whom God elected to be saved before the foundation of the Lord will be effectually called and permanently called from spiritual death to eternal life. I'm going to close with uh, an application. 
an observation, application about God's external and internal callings. And then we'll come back next week to study the final two links in the chain. Scripture requires all Christians to make sure they've been called with the specific inward calling of God. Peter says in his second letter, Therefore, brethren, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. These two things go together. It's almost, they're almost synonyms here. We might even call it your elective calling. It's the same calling and the same election that Paul is talking about in our passage. Make every effort to confirm your calling and your election. Now, this is a tough one, isn't it? What's, what's Peter mean here? How are you supposed to confirm that God has called you and elected you to be saved? That's God's work. Scripture's clear that if you're one of God's elect, if he's chosen you, then you were chosen before the foundation of the world. It, it, it happened any, What's done is done, right? And there's nothing that you can do about that. It happened in eternity past, and here we are. Can't change God's decree or determine God's decree. We've already settled that. The Bible makes that clear. The Bible also says that God's internal calling is the work of God alone, not our work. It's apart from anything you do. You can't contribute anything to your calling or your election. So how do we make sense of Peter's exhortation to confirm your calling and election? Well, the key, the key word in this verse is confirm. It's not establish. It's confirm. It's to make sure something that has already been done. You are simply to confirm that God has called you and elected you. And so this is Peter's way of both acknowledging that it's the work of God, but that we have a responsibility. Mysteriously, we have a responsibility. God is sovereign. We are responsible. And we have to affirm both without denying either one, even though we don't always know how in our finite minds to reconcile the two. They can be reconciled. They're certainly reconciled in the mind of God, but they're both true. And, and what he means here is that you must make certain your faith is a living faith, an active faith, a working faith, a loving faith, a saving faith. As James says it in James 2, a faith that produces fruit, a faith that repents of sin, a faith that is characterized, to use Peter's words in this same passage, I'll read in a minute, a faith that is characterized by goodness and self-control and endurance and godliness and brotherly affection and love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, Peter says in the same chapter, still in 2 Peter 1, if, if you possess goodness, knowledge, knowledge of God, self-control, endurance, godliness, brotherly affection and love, in increasing measure... Not in a static way, but in increasing measure, 
they will keep you from being useless and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brethren, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. 2 Peter 1, 8-11. The churches Peter was writing to and that Paul was writing to had the same challenge that the churches in every generation have had. Peter knew of baptized members of God's people who lacked goodness, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. He knew people in the church, in a sense this is all of us, who were in danger of becoming blind and short-sighted and useless and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, in danger of forgetting about the cleansing of their sins, which was offered to them in the external call of the gospel and even in their baptisms. And so they needed a word from the Lord. They needed the grace of God to keep them from stumbling, to keep them persevering in the faith. You see, God is the one who preserves us to the end, and it's his work alone. But he uses means to accomplish his ends. And one of his means, the main, one of his main means of grace is the word of God that encourages us, convicts us, challenges us, and keeps us from being useless and unfruitful, from stumbling. And when we read it, and when we entrust ourselves to the one who authored it, then we, that is where we receive the grace that preserves. That is where and how we confirm what God has done. It's how and where we confirm our calling and our election. I'll end with, with these penetrating words from D.G. Barnhouse from his exposition of Romans 8.30. If men heed no more than the outward call, they become members of the visible church. If the inward call is heard in our hearts, we become members of the invisible church, which, which is a way of talking about the true church, the genuine believers, the true people of God. The outward call unites us merely to a group of professing members, but the inward call unites us to Christ himself and to all that have been born again. The outward call may bring with it a certain intellectual knowledge of the truth, the inward call brings us the faith of the heart, the hope which anchors us forever to Christ, and the love which must ever draw us back to him who first loved us. The external call can end in formalism, ritualism, going through the motions. The internal call ends in true life. We could say eternal life. The outward call 
may curb the tendencies of the old nature and keep his soul in outward morality. The inward call will cure the plague that is in us and bring us on to triumph in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this verse, these two verses, which give us hope that our salvation is secure because it is you and you alone who accomplish it, who work it, who bring it to fruition. Lord, I pray that your effectual call, your irresistible, effective call would go to every soul that has heard the external call today, the external call of the gospel, that you would give us all saving faith and that we would increase in goodness, that we would increase in self-control, that we would increase in endurance, godliness, brotherly affection, and love, that these would all be in us in increasing measure, and that you would preserve us from becoming useless and unfruitful in our knowledge of the truth. Keep us, Lord, from becoming blind and short-sighted and forgetting what you have done for us. We need you to accomplish this in us. And so please do it for the sake of Christ. Amen.